Victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., Professor Emeritus of Democracy at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I got to ask you a question. You know, we, we kicked this thing off last week. You know, we are taking back America, sir. So I got to ask you, how you feeling? Your joint's okay? I mean, it's a lot to carry. Well, when I wake up in the morning, I'm a little stiff. So maybe, maybe you're going to have to pick up more of the slack here. <laughs> strenuous effort on both our parts but somebody's got to do it we have all collectively we got to do it right because we are reclaiming our radical past for the dweebs like josh holly and his ilk we can't let them beat us to it right time to take back america Last week, we we set the stage with common sense, and you said it perfectly, the piece that turned a rebellion into a revolution, yeah? Right. As he wrote in Common Sense, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. By the way, that is one of the most true and one of the least true statements ever made, because you can't start it all over again, because that would assume we've wiped out our memory, number one. But it's also terribly true, because what it reminds us is that we create society. We can determine through struggle, the degree to which we make real freedom, equality, and democracy. And what a hell of a transition. I mean, it's an actual transition. A baton is being passed to this week as we take on the Declaration of Independence, the natural order of where we should be headed, right? Yeah, definitely. Because Common Sense came out in January 76, and it was so overwhelmingly influential. It changed people's minds so dramatically. Before it was the rebellion, it would now become the revolution. That communities north and south petitioned, wrote to Congress, demanding a declaration of independence. So it goes from pain and in essence, within months, it goes to the Continental Congress and the declaration will become official July 4th, 1776. We're going to even set the stage in a little bit of a different way that I think a lot of folks set up the context of the Declaration of Independence. So we're going to go about it in a different way. But before we do that, you made a tweet today, and I think it actually is a great way to tee us up as we get into the Declaration of Independence. You made a tweet today that said, I avoid nostalgia, but these days I can readily understand why people succumb to it. What did you mean by that? Okay, so as long as I can remember when the question came up about when would you like to go into the past? When would you like to have lived in the past? The first thought I had, which was a decidedly silly but serious one, is I don't want to live in the past. They had lousy dentistry then. (laughs) That's serious. That was usually my standard answer when my students would ask. But more seriously, it's because as I look back, as I look back and I think about those times, I mean, would I really want to live in an age in which I then, knowing what I know, would have been an age of segregation? Would I really have wanted to live as much as I admire the struggles of the 1930s New Deal years 
and World War II, and I really have wanted to live back in the Great Depression, or for that matter, confronting fascism in World War II. The point is, I also then said I can understand why today, especially people succumb to it, because we are living in very dangerous times. And in fact, not to get too poetic about it, but Charles Dickens at the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, there's that opening. These are the best of times. These are the worst of times or these are the worst of times, best of times. These are in a fashion the best. But I would not want to brag about these times. And in fact, I'll never forget, I think it was Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, said we really have to avoid the chauvinism of the present. Hopefully in the future, generations can look back at us and say, God, were those people messed up because we'll have made it better for them. And those generations ensuing will make it all the more better for those to come. Anyhow, but you'll also see if anyone looks on Twitter at that particular tweet of mine, that everyone's trying to play a game where they try to incite me to say, oh, well, I guess that was good. Like somebody, I think I saw somebody said, well, how about stickball? Do you, don't you miss stickball? <laughs> or how about the fifties? You know? And I said, no, no, I, why would I ever want to go back to an age in which there was legislated segregation. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. So I, I've never bought into it. But as I said to you one time, if, if we ever go there, I'll go so far as to put on my Brooklyn Dodgers baseball cap from when I was a little boy, something like that. You yeah. still got the hat. No, better than that. I don't know if I ever told you this. My grandfather was very close to the Brooklyn Dodgers management, not the ownership, but the managers. I don't know if anyone will know these names, Charlie Dressen, Leo DeRocher. Well, I'll just tell you that. So when I was a little kid, my grandfather would take me to Ebbets Field and, you know, as a Brooklyn family, and we'd sit either on the first base or third base line. I actually got into the dugout. So I met Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella. I mean, I met them all. As my mother would say, they were the kind of guys who could show up at their apartment sometime, my grandparents' apartment. Oh, that's amazing. I don't want to get too carried away in the sports stuff, but I will tell you, years, some years later, so let's say that was like when I was seven years old, eight years later, seven years after that, my grandfather passed away. But my uncle, he would call me up, especially during the summer, he'd say, how would you like to take a trip to Boston? Or how would you like to take a trip to Pittsburgh? Because he also knew the guys my grandfather knew. One time he called and said, the Detroit Tigers are going to be playing the Red Sox. And I've got some business in Boston. How about if we go up? The manager of the Tigers at that time was Charlie Dressen, who had managed the Dodgers back in the 50s. You know, great seats. And I mean, it's just great. But even better than that, better than that, he called and said, how would you like to go to Pittsburgh for a few days? The San Francisco Giants are playing the Pirates. And at that point, a guy named Herman Franks, who had been with the Dodgers back in the 50s, he was now the coach. He was coaching or managing the uh, Giants. It's like 64, 65. On the team at that time was still the Alou brothers, Willie Mays. Yep. And this is the surprise. This was the last year of Warren Spahn's career. He had played for the Braves all those years. He was now finishing his career with the Giants. And afterward, my uncle said, we'll go with the team on the bus, got on the team bus, and we went out to dinner with a few of these guys. And yeah, it was really, it was really, really something. That's all I can tell you. But see, look at us. We are literally doing exactly what we just said. We're doing nostalgia. We're going back. Wait, hold on. It's one thing to remember fondly certain things. Nostalgia is something else. Nostalgia is when you allow yourself to get so swept up that you start to fantasize about the past and as a consequence, completely miss the history. And I think that's a great way to tee us up to what we're doing right now. You want to get into the Declaration of Independence, my friend? Well, let's, let me start off with this, a couple of things that'll get us into it. And let's consider this. So Thomas Paine's common sense really did tell Americans that they had an exceptional possibility. 
of starting the world over again. And what he meant by that is that for the first time in human history, a people had an opportunity to really pursue not just independence, but a democratic politic. Now, it wasn't fully accomplished. Let's, let's face it, okay? But the idea was he basically enabled Americans to see their historic opportunity, not just for themselves, but for all of human history, that they would transform human history. So what he's saying to them is that Americans, if you do it right, there's a very special promise at stake here. And if we consider the fact that's January 76 and that by July 76, the Congress has drafted and approved the declaration, what we see is that in the declaration is a promise. Let's get it out right away. Yeah, they were slaveholders who held the pens who signed the document, not all of them, but a good too many of them. But they signed a promise, like a contract with later generations at the least, but for themselves as well, which they may not have lived up to, that, as we'll, as we'll see, that involved a recognition of human equality and literally the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what we have to understand is that all too often, especially those of us on the left, too often look back and we allow ourselves to scorn the document because we see it as merely the, the hypocritical promise made by a generation of slaveholders and men who were willing, eager in some ways to marginalize women. But if we do what, say, Frederick Douglass did, Douglass learned how to read the founding documents in a new way where he could hold the founders and the framers accountable, but recognize that the promise that they made transcended their reactionary instincts when it came to slavery and some other stuff. So when we look at the document, we should look at it in terms of the promise made. And one, one way to look at it in those terms, and you and I have talked about this before, and we should look at that first, is we should look at a poem written in the 1930s by the great African-American poet Langston Hughes, Let America Be America. And let's start there, in fact, because it's important to realize that the promise was embraced generation upon generation, as was Thomas Paine's radical understanding of what America could be. Let's start off with that first paragraph, the stanza. I, I still think like a prose writer, not a poet, okay? Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. Now, that sounds terribly idealistic, you might say right? Terribly idealistic. But then he hits us with a line which needs to be seen to be fully appreciated. And I urge everyone to go online or go get a book with this poem in it. It's a line set in parenthesis. He writes, America never was America to me. And this is, this is a voice we can imagine is off on the side. It's been marginalized all too long, but he's demanding to be heard or she's demanding to be heard. And he goes on from there. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. And then again, that voice in parenthesis, that next line, it never was America to me. But there's a surprising turn coming in this poem. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. And then again, the voice in parenthesis, the voice that we hear, but we're, we have yet to embrace our fellow American, you might say. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. And now 
the italics. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? What's going to happen now is that the voice changes dramatically in the poem. Instead of it being presumably the white man, the white propertied man or propertied white man, the voice changes and the italics indicate this. And I mean, again, I may be presumptuous as a white man to speak these lines, but I will because the story is ours. And you will see that Langston Hughes fully appreciates the story is ours and not merely theirs or his or whatever. And he says, I am the poor white. Think about that. Pulled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from the land. Remember, this is written in the 30s, so we have to keep that in mind. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I see and finding only the same old stupid plan of doggy dog of mighty crush the weak. And this is where, as it goes forward, it's the voice then of the black poet recognizing the solidarity among working people, but never, never failing to insist upon and assert the voice of African-Americans. You want me to keep going? Yes, I sure do. (laughs) We may never get to the declaration. Worst comes to worst, we'll postpone that for a week. And he says, well, you should read this next stanza. Come on. He says, I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, oh pioneers. I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker battered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a serf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone and every furrowed turn that's made America the land it's become. I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what it meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore of Poland's plain, of England's grassy lea. And torn from black Africa's strand, I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. And I'll just remind everyone, this is in the midst of the depression. But the hope that's being expressed here, that why else would he say, let America be America again, is because there was this set of progressive and radical social movements from below and a president whom working people elected named FDR. And we'll get to this later in the year, but let's keep going. Let America be America again. Let the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose, 
The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. The irony of that, when he says we have to make America be America again, he, in that entire poem, is telling you how much America is not America. So it has to be then that promise. Right. And by the way, as I think we indicated last week when we talk about common sense and Thomas Paine, the founders did not come up with the idea of independence or even for that matter, in some ways, the rhetoric that Jefferson inscribes in that declaration. He himself said, he himself said that really these were ideas that prevailed. He was only writing or speaking the mind of Americans of the day. And what that meant is that Jefferson, for all of his property holding and slave holding and all that, fully aware that the struggles from below were what propelled the writing of this document. That poem of Langston Hughes is probably the best poetic rendition of American history ever written, at least for that length. And I, I want you to know, in my last years of, of full-time teaching, I would often begin my course, Historical Perspectives on American Democracy, by handing out that poem to my students and telling them that if you want to get an idea of how I understand American history, this poem will tell you that. And I told them, go home and read it. And then I try, you know, it's funny how students, when they hit 18, 19, 20, they become very reserved, at least in the classroom. And I would try to get them to recite that poem out loud. Because if you can break through with poetry, then history itself becomes easy. And I'll be honest, I didn't think I'd be reciting poetry today. I feel like you did this on purpose, Harvey. Did you do that on purpose? Yes, I did, as a matter ah. of fact. Because <laughs> I said to you, I'm not sure that as the white guy, I should be the one reading this poem. And you said, not to worry, because I've got this great <laughs> recording. But I figured if we could break down that wall, we didn't need the recording. We could do it together and capture the spirit of the poem itself. I see what you did there, my friend. I see what you did there. And, and the professor. <laughs> Yeah, as people will see, I don't know how many weeks ahead, we will turn to Frederick Douglass's great speech or sermon, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And I'll tell you now, I would hand that out to my students or have them buy a little pamphlet version of it. And I would say to them this question. I said, this is what we're going to do next time. But you have only one question to answer from the assignment of reading it between now and the next class. And that is, was Frederick Douglass an antagonist of America or was he a patriot? And I could tell you the answer was simple. Okay. This is a hint of where we're going. If they read all the way through, they had to answer a patriot. If they stopped halfway through, they would say he was an antagonist. So my grading was very easy that day. <laughs> you know all the tricks. Knowledge we... is a powerful weapon, you know? <laughs> when we come back, we dig into the Declaration of Independence with Professor Harvey K. You just, you really, you mind blow me, my friend. You got me good, didn't you? You got me. I'm bowing right now. <laughs> it's your KC Morning Show.
All right, Professor K, we have ourselves the Declaration of Independence. Now, I think we can all agree that most of us listening to this are at least in some way familiar with the Declaration. Maybe it's just once a year with the fireworks, but you know something about the Declaration of Independence. So I feel like we can bullet point some of this, but we want to get that main through line, which is the the freedom of it all, the promise of it all. Take it away, my friend. And obviously we have an advantage over the founders for all of their literary creativity. And that advantage is that we know what a difference this actually did make, whereas they just literally had the hope that it might make that difference. So let's be honest with everyone. We're not going to go through the whole declaration. We want to look especially at those opening paragraphs, what people might call the preamble to the declaration, because that's where the promise is stated. And I want to make it clear to everyone, this is a promise that is that we own. We're the heirs to this promise, whether we're native-born, whether we're the descendants of slaves, the descendants of farmers, the descendants of workers or laborers, whether we're immigrants and newly arrived, this is a promise that we are the heirs to. So when we look at this this first paragraph, okay, and this time I don't, I won't call it a stanza, I will call it a paragraph. When in the course of human events, this basically is a statement that we understand we are operating in real history. This is not simply a philosopher's statement. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Before we go on, I want to highlight certain things. Okay, One of the things I want to highlight is it becomes necessary for one people. And I, I've said this to you before, Hartzell. It's interesting. I read an article a few years ago, which posed a question to me that I think I can answer, but I, it still is a challenge. And that is, when did Americans become a people? Not when did the United States declare its independence or when did the United Colonies become the United States, but when did Americans become a people? And I can tell you that there are going to be listeners out there who say, you think Americans are a people, especially given the divide right now and the depth of that divide, you know, manifested in a seemingly trivial question of will you wear a mask indoors or will you not? That kind of crap. Okay. well, I think Thomas Paine actually turned Americans into a people, whether they, in some ways, whether they all liked each other or not, that's not the point. When he enabled them to see that they were Americans and that that's what empowers this declaration. That's what empowers Adams and Jefferson and Franklin and the others to think of Americans in perhaps still in a dreamlike way as a people. I mean, divided terribly, horrifically so when you imagine freedom versus bondage, you know, white freedom Black bondage. But we should also remember at this time, there are still white indentured servants as well. One people, when there are men who are obviously more entitled at that moment than all of the women, perhaps, other than the ones who had enough property not to care, who are married to men with property and so on. That question of a people, we should keep that in our heads. This is another thing in this first paragraph. I have to tell everyone, Newt Gingrich, former congressman, the right winger, the toady for Trump all too often. I mean, the man who, who authored with others what's called the contract, was it the contract for America, but if thought through properly as the contract on America. Well, he wrote a book 
all about American exceptionalism, in which he says American exceptionalism emanates from the Declaration. And I can tell you that it's possible if one thinks of the promise, but not in the way Gingrich would put it. Gingrich makes the claim that this is somehow all divinely inspired and that, in fact, without that sense of divine inspiration, that exceptionalism would not have emerged. Well, I got to tell you something. The likes of Gingrich failed to understand that a goodly number of the founders, the most famous of the founders, let's say Jefferson, let's say Franklin, let's say Adams, let's say Washington, and decidedly my own hero, who was not part of any of these writings, but pre preceded it with his own, Thomas Paine, they were not, as too often these right-wingers pretend to believe, they were not Christians. They were deists, okay? They believed in God, but they believed in a God, the creator, not a God who would interfere in humanity. That's the way they would have put it. And it's true that some of them attended church. Adams, I believe, attended church. But George Washington, although he never confessed to it, was a deist. Thomas Paine was a militant deist. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, kept a book, the better parts of, of the Bible, uh, you know, basically Jesus's best stuff. But not for a minute did he believe that Jesus was a deity. I mean, it, this is the case. So this line is fundamental. And this is what the conservative Christian folk ignore. They say, to assume the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Nature's God, that's the deist understanding of the divinity, that it's linked to the idea of the creation and the nature that was created in the course of the creation. Let's be clear about it. Even Thomas Paine was not an atheist. So you're talking about a creation aspect, not a manifest destiny aspect of it. They wouldn't have called it manifest destiny. What they believed is that the creation had aspects of providence to it. Okay. It wasn't all predetermined, but there were possibilities that humanity could try to make the most of, we'd say. Now, Thomas Paine had an answer for that question. And he said, well, the Bible, he said, was written by men. As a consequence, it's not the divine word. He was very insistent upon that in a pamphlet, The Age of Reason. But what he did say is that if you really want to understand God's creation, you have to study it in a scientific way because of its magnificence. You want to understand this incredible gift that God afforded humanity. And what he said is when you come to grips with the magnificence of that creation, you realize there's one fundamental rule, one fundamental morality, and that is do unto others. So God gives this gift. We should all be magnanimous in that fashion. Payne said, I believe in God and my religion is to do right by others. The work of it all. Yes, exactly. So laws of nature and of nature's God, right? So that's the opening sort of philosophical proposition and political argument. But now we get to the heart of the matter of the promise. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I don't think they quite meant obvious. What they meant is on, on reflection, they believed this was the promise. And what is it? that all men are created equal. Now, I hear the feminists among us saying, well, they left out women. But you have to understand, in the 18th century, the word mankind was referring to men and women. Look, the guys who signed the document, they were neither egalitarians, nor were they feminists. And that's the case. But somehow, the pens that signed it signed on to this promise that transcended their utter inadequacies, their faults, their failings, their sins, and so on. I'm not excusing any of their sins. Just think it's important to recognize that. But you'll see in a few weeks when we turn to the Declaration of Sentiments, the women's 
rights call of 1848, that those women weren't going to buy into the idea. They wanted reality to be the reality of the promise and not the reality they were enduring and suffering. Okay, so we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. To this day, somewhere along the way, I mistakenly kept thinking it was inalienable. It's unalienable right. Good to be able to have the text in front of me, okay? (laughs) That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the promise. All men are created equal, all endowed by their creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you will see as we go forward that many, a major figure, whether they were radical or progressive, understood the radicalism of this line. I mean, Lincoln and FDR among our presidents were magnificent in their understandings of this, as we'll see when we do, say, the Gettysburg Address or the Four Freedom Speech by FDR and similar kinds of things. Life, because as One of my colleagues, John Shelton at the university, he and I love team teaching this. He would say to the students, so what does it take to have life? And they would talk about all the imperatives, right? All the imperatives of food, clothing, shelter, and so on. And that's what life demands. So if you are without, it means that promise is denied you. Liberty, what does that demand, right? What does it take to be free? As we'll see once in, in, in some many weeks ahead, FDR said, Needy men, and he meant needy men and women are not free. Life, liberty, and then the pursuit of happiness. Now, historians know, political science, theorists and scientists know that these men were influenced by Locke, John Locke, the English philosopher. Locke wrote Life, Liberty, and Property. Now, here's why Jefferson did us all a grand favor. He said he's going to inscribe it with Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And then when we ask students, students are good sort of, if you like, reflection of popular thinking, I guess. What does it take to be able to pursue happiness? And then they would go on beyond like, you know, food, clothing, and shelter. And they would talk about, you know, an income so that you can get an education or you can do this, you can do that. And the declaration has no standing in law in American life, but it is a fundamental understanding of what it means to be an American, that you have these rights. And the debate... The conservatives will tell you, well, let's go back to the founders. You know, we're all born equal in our rights, but they'll limit those rights. Go to the progressive side. And I hope people realize we should not reject the Declaration. We should do what the smartest, most profound thinkers, men and women to follow, made of the Declaration, that the Declaration lives and lives only if we are able to enhance the promise itself, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it continues that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So in other words, we create government not to impose itself upon us, but to enable us, to empower us to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, freedom and security, and those things necessary to have a decent, humane, if you like, ever-enhanced life, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. Paine said, and constitution will come up you know, soon enough, it's people who create the constitution out of which the government emerges, not the government that creates the constitution and then asks for the permission of the people to proceed. And then whenever that any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of people to alter or to abolish it. Now, this is important. Notice they're not saying the state's rights. 
They are saying the people's right, the collectivity of the people. And this will come up when we get to the preamble of the Constitution, which is why anyone who argues for states' rights is just out of touch with the founding documents, because it doesn't say we the states when we get to the preamble. It will pick up on this idea of we the people. The states don't break up the union. This is as Lincoln would make the case. The people themselves must in their own fashion. And thus, as a consequence, he knew that that was a safe haven among the people. This is that promise that's made. And as we go forward in weeks to come, what we're going to see is that in every generation, just as radicals and progressives look back to the revolution and rediscovered Paine's arguments and the radical spirit that they felt but didn't realize where it came from, they will also lay their hands, their hearts and their minds on this promise and make the demand of the rights of the people, whether they were native born or newly arrived. And I can tell you, I, I look forward to when we get those kinds of arguments to ground ourselves in Payne's arguments and the promise declared here in the Declaration. I, I, I mean, Beyond this, we get to a whole series of really good arguments as to why it's necessary for the separation. But to me, the heart of the matter is the promise declared. Think about Josh Hawley's Love America Act, right? And it says, require students to read the Declaration. Well, I should hope so. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Pledge of Allegiance, and learn how to recite these things and make sense of them. In first grade, the Pledge of Allegiance. In the fourth grade, the Constitution in the eighth grade, the Declaration, the 10th grade, the Bill of Rights, these things should be considered. The danger in Hawley's Love America Act is when he goes on to say that any school system that encourages or teaches that these documents are in any way tainted by the racism that we know prevailed, that these schools are subject to losing their funding, the federal funds. Well, look, I'll subscribe to reading and reciting. I think that's great. And let's approach it from Frederick Douglass's vantage point. Let's approach it from Abraham Lincoln's vantage point. Let's approach it from FDR's vantage point. Let's approach it from the Seneca Falls 1848 vantage point. Let's read the promise, recognize the degree to which the promise was not only unfulfilled, but literally abandoned the thought that we, at that moment of inclusion, and yet the promise transcended the author's hands. By the way, the best proof of that is, is this. During the revolutionary years, the document that was considered in many ways the founding or inspired document was Thomas Paine's Common Sense. It's only later that the Declaration becomes important in the larger American audience or people. The Declaration is authored by a, a, a host or a cohort of founders. So undeniably, Today, we look back and see that as the founding moment. It's the first time the United States of America is actually stated. Payne never said United States of America. But it is the case that for those who fought the war for independence and the making of, a, of an independent republic, for those who supported that struggle, it was common sense. That was their manifesto. That was their call to arms. But here's the thing. When the declaration was issued and there were celebrations, you know, and on and on and on, it was the case. The very first group of people to truly grab hold of it for political purposes other than to fight the revolution were African-Americans, many of them slaves in New England. And they said, OK, we take this seriously. And they then began to petition the courts in New England 
to declare them free. They could see the promise embedded there and they were the first to lay hold of it. Now, in some cases, you know, I don't, I actually couldn't tell you what the results of all those cases were, but I can tell you that as we go forward, you'll see the degree to which every group that believed itself marginal or subject to white male property holders found their way to lay hold of the document. And by the way, let's make it clear, it was a very, very powerful argument that they made. And the struggle went on and advances were made. But let's not get too much ahead of ourselves right now. Look, my feeling is that people should go out, they should get a hold of common sense, and they should get a hold of the Declaration, and they should get a hold of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And every so often, when they wonder about the state of affairs of the world, it's not going to make them feel better to read these documents, but it might remind them that they are Americans. By the way, these founders didn't say these were American rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were saying these were universal rights, very presumptuous, perhaps, on their part. But I will also tell you that declarations of independence that ensued in Latin America and elsewhere. I mean, I've got this great collection, which I can't show everyone, but it's titled We the Other People, Alternative Declarations of Independence. In every generation, a movement would emerge demanding its place in American history on an equal basis to others. And they would author their own declaration modeled after that original. And similarly, there's this other book I've got sitting behind me, which is a study of the way in which the declaration became a global document. Ho Chi Minh, who led the revolution against the anti-colonial revolution and the creation of an independent Vietnam back in the late 1940s into the 50s, and then led North Vietnam in its campaign to unify the country. The tragedy is when people asked him what inspired him in some ways, he said the Declaration of Independence of the United States, which is he might well have been influenced by Marx as well. It was oddly enough, Jefferson's declaration. And for me, that's why when I look at the declaration, you know, I don't see so much divine as I do, you know, workers or populist. Right. Farmers. Exactly. American slaves, women. This is the interesting thing. Let's go to, let's think about white farmers in Virginia in 1776. They were very skeptical of signing on to anything called a revolution. Why? Because they figured, look, the likes of Washington and Jefferson and the others, they're all a bunch of, you know, rich white slaveholders. And I'll tell you even something more significant, and this is really fundamental, as I tried to say during the Common Sense Week, it's that they feared that if the likes of Washington and the others, they didn't know that Washington and the others might be deists. They figured they were members of the Church of England, that they were Anglicans. And so many of these farmers in particular counties were Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist. And they feared that independence would set up an Anglican dominated state. And in fact, that we'd end up with bishops, which did not exist prior to in the colonial era. So when they read Common Sense and Thomas Paine's lines about separation of church and state, there should be no role for government in religion other than to guarantee everyone the capacity to worship as they please. That's what led them to sign on to the revolution. That you mean if we carry out this struggle for independence and a democratic republic that we will have equal rights to everyone else, regardless of our faith. There is no mention in the Declaration of Religion. Thomas Paine did not write the Declaration. 
or it might well have spoken of such things. Thomas Paine would, might have added other things, but it remains a fundamentally revolutionary document. Well, Professor Harvey Kay, we just knocked out the declaration, my friend. Where are we headed next week? Well, we should probably have a look for the fun of it at the preamble to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I mean, the preamble is another one of these things that people don't pay enough attention to it because I don't think people quote it in the courtroom. But it really does offer a promise that transcends its day. And similarly, the Bill of Rights, I, especially the, that First Amendment. You got to love the First Amendment. And I, I can tell you that it's only maybe five or six years ago that I fully really realized by reading other scholars on this, realized the nature of that First Amendment is like a poem almost. Somebody called it, I think, Madison's music in that First Amendment. So we'll, we'll have a look at those things and we can look at some other stuff for the time. But I think the preamble and, and the First Amendment warrant our attention. And then beyond that, well, there's lots of possibilities. I know we will go on to the Declaration of Sentiments. We'll go on to, to Douglas's uh, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. We'll eventually go on to Lincoln's. There are a bunch of speeches. God, Lincoln Lincoln was phenomenal. And I, 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 I know I'm going to go off on and talk about Lincoln a bit too much when we get to him. You know, there's, there's so much ahead of us. You know, I'm someone you know, I've said it already this show. I'll keep saying it. I am someone that loves America, even if it is just the idea of America. And and that's actually, that's not true. I know why I love America because it's made up of people and it's the story of us our collective story. And in this moment, we look back to the past for answers and maybe not answers, but a direction or maybe a path towards an answer. We can look at our collective history and propel us forward. And I'm saying on the left, we can do that too. Okay. I'm also going to call our attention. I won't spend a whole session on it, but I want to mention it when, as we approach the Frederick Douglass lecture sermon speech. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, David Walker's appeal. This was a very radical pamphlet that was issued. I think it would have been about 1830, 1830s, which is inspired by the likes of Payne's Common Sense and the Declaration. But he's he's got a different take. He says to the colored citizens of the world, he's got this really important argument to make. We'll make a mention of this along the way. We won't spend the whole, a whole session on it because I'm not as deeply familiar with it. Oh, wait. And then when we do the preamble and the Bill of Rights, we will also then that next time mention Thomas Paine's agrarian justice and his sort of stepping off from the question of rights, he will propose a whole new understanding of rights in a social democratic way in the 1790s. We're going to make it so cool to be a social democrat, Harvey. I hope you know that, my friend. Let's not forget to say that the football season's underway. <laughs> professor Harvey K. he is the professor of democracy over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Let me remind everyone, it's Professor Emeritus because... I, I retired in the midst of the pandemic because I wanted to I wanted to do shows with you and other young folk. And I didn't want to do teaching online because I wanted to see the face of the person I'm speaking to. Well, I know technically you're emeritus now, but you're teaching us right now, my friend. So if you're asking me in the rest of our, you know, the, the Kansas City Morning Show, you're still teaching, brother. Always teaching. That's great. That's great. Thank you very much. Harvey K, my brother, we're going to do this again next week. You bet. Go Chiefs. Go Pack Go. <laughs> Show. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.